Scripture reading this morning will be from 1 Peter chapter 3, the first six verses. Uh, this could be found in the Pew Bibles in front of you there uh, on page 1077. 1 Peter chapter 3, first six verses. I will be reading from King James Version. <clears throat> Likewise, ye wives, be in subjection to your own husbands, that if any obey not the word, they also may, without the word, be won by the conversation of the wives, while they behold your chaste conversation coupled with fear, whose adorning, let it not be that outward adorning of plating the hair, and of wearing of gold, or of putting on of apparel, but let it be the hidden man of the heart, and that which is not corruptible, even the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit, which is in the sight of God of great price. For after this manner, in the old time, the holy women also who trusted in God adorned themselves, being in subjection to, unto their own husbands. Even as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters you are, as long as you do well and are not afraid with any amazement. Good morning. It is good to see each of you. If you're a guest with us this morning, again, we welcome you. It encourages us that you're here, and we hope that we can be an encouragement to you. I bring you greetings from Morristown, Tennessee. Eight years ago, uh, we did a campaign at the Morristown Church of Christ, and uh, I spent this past week with them in a gospel meeting, and they're still calling many of you by name and reminiscing about door-knocking times with you and just love and appreciate you very much. And before I left town, uh, the elders asked me to come in, and we sat down a few minutes, and we prayed together, and they looked me in the eyes again, and they said, please be sure and tell the Mount Juliet Church of Christ how much we love and appreciate them. And so I pass on those uh, sincere greetings to you and, and words of appreciation. Also, uh, we're excited. Ray Burchett leaves tomorrow uh, to go to preaching school in Denver, Colorado, Bear Valley. And uh, we want to be mindful of that in our prayers. We want to encourage him. And we're thankful for the decision that he has made to do that. That's an intense study for two years uh, where every class is, is either on a Bible text or uh, something related to ministry. And so it's an intense study for two years. And we're thankful uh, that he is taking advantage of that and the opportunity that that'll be for him uh, to do uh, great work in the Lord's kingdom. The mower broke down and the wife continued to hint that it really needs to be repaired. For long as the nagging went along, she even said, if you just repair it, I'll mow the yard. The mower continued to be broken. So finally one day, she came up with the idea that, that maybe instead of all this nagging, she would try something else. And so she sat down just on the edge of the yard, right off of the sidewalk. She made sure that she was there at the time that her husband arrived home from work. She had a pair of sewing scissors. She was clipping the yard. Her husband parked the car, walked around to the front of the house, just stood there, bewildered, didn't say a word, just watched her. 
She never looked up, never stopped clipping. He walked on in the house. A few minutes, he walked back out and he handed her a toothbrush. Very frustrated, she said, well, what is this for? He said, I figure when you get done cutting the yard, you'll want to sweep off the sidewalk. When you think about marriage, do you think about the blessing that God intended for marriage to be? When you think about marriage as it relates to the very beginning in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, marriage was the solution for loneliness. It was the creation of companionship. Marriage was literally to be a blessing. We look around our society today and sometimes even within our very own walls of our home and maybe we struggle to see the blessing that marriage was created to be. When you think about our purpose in life and you think about what is it really? Is it to find ourselves? Is it to accomplish a certain portfolio? Is it to stockpile up possessions? Is it to be able to reach a a place of prominence so that we can be in a certain circle of people? Is it that we can be known? Is it that we can be powerful? Or is it that we are to be people that are heaven bound? What greater importance could there be to our existence than to say, I'm on my way to heaven? That's where I am going. And the people that I touch in my life, that is the influence that I have upon them. Can we say, my spouse, my spouse is one of the greatest spiritual influences in my life. If we can, we're blessed. But we can't live each other's life. So for the next couple of weeks, I'd like for you to think about this. Are you the great spiritual influence in the life of your spouse? How many times will we sometimes say, oh, I'd kick and claw and fight and I would do anything to provide for my spouse what they need. Will you do that in what they need as it relates to how to get to heaven? to the daily journey. Every journey has a destination. Where where is the destination of your journey in marriage? We think about theology, the study of God, but where does the study of God meet real life? Can we say that our marriages... Our marriages contain theology. In other words, the way I treat my husband, the way I treat my wife, speaks volumes about God, or does it reflect someone other than God? What if, instead of just studying marriage over the next couple of weeks, what if we study it under the approach of what can I do to help my spouse get to heaven? Isn't that beautiful? Can there be anything more positive than that in marriage? What can I do to help my spouse get to heaven? Friends, we don't have to guess at this one. We don't have to think, well, I wonder what God would say. I wish He would have told us what we could do to help our spouse get to heaven. 
No, he tells us this. And as we think about being spouses that are heaven bound, especially this morning from the text that was read, let's think about wives helping their husbands get to heaven. And we'll come back later and look at husbands helping their wives get to heaven. But to be able to do this, we need to be able to define success. What is success in marriage? Now, we've already touched on it a little bit, but let's state it real clearly. How do you define success in marriage? Is it what you have bought together? How many, how many boast of the fact, well, we've been married a lot of years, and I tell you what, when we got married, we didn't have two nickels to rub together, and look at this house now, not to mention our lake house, and oh, isn't it amazing, all the things. I tell you what, I guess you'd have to say we've had a successful marriage. If you define marriage based on what you can buy together, that would be a successful marriage. Is that the way you want to define marriage? Or a very common way today, you've heard me say many times, and we won't elaborate upon it in this series that much, but I'll point it out from time to time. We are guilty in our society, especially middle class society, upper class. We, we are guilty of turning our children into gods. And it's killing our marriages, and it's killing our society, and it's ruining our children. And so you hear that a lot. You, you hear, here's how people define marriage today. Well, I tell you what, we must have done all right. Do you see the degrees our children have? Do you, do you see the success our children have? Do you see the houses they're living in? Do, do you know the invention my child came up with? Do, do you know uh, of the powerful position that, that one of my children holds? Is that how you define marriage? Is, is that success in marriage? That, that your children have succeeded on a worldly level? Or what has not happened? Well, we haven't divorced, so I guess we're doing better than over half the people. I guess we've got a good marriage. How do you define marriage? I beg you, if you haven't thought about how you define success in marriage, please take this with you this week and pray about it and meditate upon it and find conviction in your heart that you are defining success in marriage in the same way God would define success in marriage. What if we show up on the day of judgment and I have to step offside because we're not going to stand before God together on the day of judgment. It's one at a time. And what if I have to step off the side and I have to watch my wife answer on the day of judgment and she's able to fulfill all the world's standards of success and then at the end I have to hear the Lord say, depart from me. For I never knew you. Or is it that the greatest success in marriage is having a marriage that is heaven bound? Where we are on our way to heaven and we can honestly say we're doing everything within our power of influence to make sure that our spouse is on the way to heaven. We are closer to God because of the person we married. Can that be true based off your spouse saying that about you? And how sad would it be if your spouse had to honestly say today, I've really struggled in my spiritual life because of who I married. I used to be closer to God than what I, were, what I was before I got married, but now they're a strain in my spiritual relationship. They pull me away. They discourage me. They beat me down. I've never felt like such a small, insignificant person. I've never felt like I've struggled so much spiritually. What would be the description? Let's give our heart. Let's give our life to being individuals 
that if in fact we're married, that we are committed to having marriages that are heaven bound. The text that was just so capably read, did you notice that as he speaks to wives, he gives three sentences and each of those sentences have two verses. And I'd like for you to notice the first and the second verse especially. I'm sorry, the first and the second sentence especially. And this morning we'll look at primarily the first sentence. But what's interesting to me, and, and something that, that I don't guess I've ever noticed before in studying this text, in the first two verses, that's the first sentence, he speaks primarily of actions that you could do that would be attractive to your spouse. And by the word attractive, I simply mean get their attention. You know how bugs are attracted to light? What is it that gets the attention of your spouse and gets the attention of your spouse in a favorable way? Wives, how many times, how many times has a wife said, I would love for my husband to be a better man in these particular areas. I don't know how to encourage him. 1 Peter 3, 1 and 2, he gives some insight to what you can do. Now, in 3 and 4, he gives a second sentence. In the second sentence, he dwells on what attracts the heart of God. And it is the heart of a woman if, in fact, she has the heart that he has designed. And so what we'll probably do next week is come back and start with that part of the lesson and then immediately look at verse 7 in the text and talk about husbands. But I'd like for you to notice especially what is it that wives can do according to God that would be a blessing spiritually to their husbands. Now get this, even if their husbands are not believers. So what can wives do even if their husbands are not believers? Let's go back and let's look at 1 Peter 3, 1 and 2 again. And I'd like for you to especially notice the last phrase in verse 1 and then in verse 2 as we begin looking at this. But back at the beginning of verse 1, it says, Wives, likewise, be submissive to your own husbands, that even if some do not obey the word, they, that's talking about some husbands, do not obey the word of God, they, that's the husbands, without a word, talking about a, without a word from the wife, may be one to Christ by what? Here we go. The conduct of of their wives when they observe your chaste conduct accompanied by fear. What is it that would cause a husband to observe and say, you know what? When I watch you do that, it makes me want to consider whether or not I want to live a Christian life. When I watch you do that, it encourages me to live a Christian life. Well, what is it? He talks about chaste Conduct. The root of the word chaste is innocent, pure, clean, modest. And some translations say conversation. Other translations uh, translate it conduct. It's the idea of what you would say and what you would do. It would pertain to your attitude. And so he says, wives, if you can have a chaste, if you can have a pure attitude behavior, speech, those are the things that gets a man's attention in the long run. I'd like for you to look with me, if you will, to 2 Corinthians, the 11th chapter. And you can hold your finger here. We'll come back to this. In 2 Corinthians, the 11th chapter, now we're leaving a passage that's urging wives to be chaste, and we're going to a passage where Paul is speaking to the church 
And he's going to give the same urging to the church. And he's going to call Christ the bride or the groom. And he's going to look at the church as as the wife or the bride. And I'd like for you to notice in verse 2. He says, for I am jealous for you with godly jealousy. Isn't that interesting? There is a godly jealousy. For I have betrothed you to one husband. In other words, the congregation there at Corinth, he says, I came and I taught you about Jesus Christ and I committed you to Jesus Christ. But see, in the time that he's been gone, there have been false teachers to come along and they have begun following some of the false teachings. And so now he's saying, I see a bit of unfaithfulness. You're not being faithful to your husband, so to speak, here. And so notice he says, For I betrothed you to one husband, notice the emphasis on one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. Now, you understand that clearly, right? He's saying, if you're going to be pure and holy virgin presented to Christ, you would have to be committed to one Christ, one husband. But he says, now, I see you on one hand saying you're committed to Christ, but I also see you following some false teachings that's taking you in other directions. See, that's not chase. Wives, would your husband ever doubt your faithfulness? A part of being chaste is the idea that says, I have presented myself pure and clean and committed. It's not just the simple fact I am, it is that my husband knows that I am. Games have no place in marriage. Well, if, if I flirt with so-and-so, maybe it will wake him up. Maybe he'll never know. Any kind of unfaithfulness, the wife leaves the opportunity to be a spiritual influence to help her husband get to heaven. And she becomes a part of the stumbling block. This chasteness that's being spoken of here. It not only is the idea of purity, but here as it's used in this sentence, it's purity to one husband. Drop back to 1 Corinthians, the 7th chapter. You remember in 1 Corinthians, the 7th chapter, at the end of the 6th chapter of 1 Corinthians, we have the problem of fornication being addressed. And he says in one short sentence, flee fornication. That's the whole sentence. That's powerful though. Don't commit fornication. He says, run away from fornication. So what's going to be the answer to this? We go to the 7th chapter. And in the 7th chapter, the answer, there are things like this. And I've underlined especially the passage that, that pertain to the wife this morning because we want to study the husband later. But, but notice this. Verse 2, nevertheless, because of sexual immorality, that's fornication, let each man have what? His own wife. The husband ought to be confident in the fact that his wife is his. Not his and some other man's. But that his wife is his. The man should find comfort in that. He should find security in that. He should find every word, action, attitude, and behavior of the wife echoing that. Building that up. Displaying that. Now notice as we go to verse 3 of this very same 1 Corinthians 7. Let the husband render to his wife the affection due her, and likewise also the wife to her husband. Whose husband? Her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. What's the point here? 
The point is real clear that if we're going to be chaste, if we're going to be pure, we see that there is an ownership. And within this ownership is honoring the ownership. In a moment, we're going to get to submission. And and you're going to hear me make a passionate plea of the beauty of submission. I am so angry at Satan and the world for violating one of the most beautiful concepts in marriage. Whenever a husband recognizes that he is to be submissive to God, that he is not his own person, and his family is not his own, that we belong to God, and that man is submissive to God, it changes everything for the good in that family. And when the wife is submissive and she recognizes that she's not her own, and here I am preaching the point before we get there. All right, but you see the point. And, and so, so what we see here is we see the idea that whenever we recognize we're not our own, we belong to someone else, we live a chaste life because we recognize our life is not about ourselves. Our body does not belong to us. Our life does not belong to us. We belong to someone else. So now, just to finish this point, let's go back again to that passage in 2 Corinthians 11. And I'd like for you to notice what defiles women. And the truth is this principle is true for men, but he's just mentioning women here because he's talking about the example of a wife to a husband. Then he's talking about example of the church, which would include men, to Christ. And now he's going to give that early example of when a wife did not practice a chaste behavior. And we know this one very well. It goes back to the very beginning. So let's go back to 2 Corinthians 11 and look at verse 3 now. But I fear, now keep in mind, this is a passage where Paul is saying, as a congregation, you're no longer faithful to, to your groom, Christ. So he says in 3, But I fear, lest somehow as a serpent deceived Eve... So see, that's how we lose being chaste. We are deceived by the serpent... How? By his craftiness. How? So your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. Listen, sometimes we dog simplicity. We act like it's a negative thing. And you see what Paul's saying here? Paul is boasting in simplicity. He's saying, do you realize how simple it is? And you're missing it. You're missing what is beautiful here. Why? Because now your minds... Your minds are corrupt. What is corrupt? Corrupt literally in its, in its very root form has to do with shrivel or wither. And, and, and you see something that, you know, maybe it might be delicious to eat until several days later and it's shriveled up and it's withered away. And you say, ooh, what? That is ruined. How does the mind become ruined? When the mind falls for the deceptiveness of Satan, the mind becomes ruined. And so here, this wife has the opportunity to be a spiritual influence for her husband, but now she can't. Literally, she can't. Why? In the present condition, her mind is ruined. The only way that she could in turn be the example that she needs to be for her husband is repentance. And how do you repent? Don't be conformed. Don't be shaped like the world. Why? The world's mind is swiveled. It is, it is, it is uh, withered. It is ruined. Do not be conformed by this world. Be transformed. What? By the renewing of the mind. And when the mind is renewed, then we can think like we ought to think clearly. And we can recognize the opportunity that we have to be chaste. So how is it that God expects a woman to help her husband 
get to heaven. Now keep in mind, everybody understands we can't live each other's lives. A wife is not responsible for her husband, but she is responsible to her husband in being the spiritual example that she can be. Well, what is it that he would say? Well, we've already mentioned it. Look back up in verse 1 of 1 Peter, the third chapter. What is this chaste behavior? This chaste behavior is going to include submissiveness. And submissiveness is a beautiful thing contrary to the lies that Satan would tell us. You remember John 8 and 44? Satan will tell us, or or the scriptures reveals us that Satan will tell us lies. And, and that's all he is. He's the father of lies. Remember John 14 and 6? Who is Jesus? Jesus says, I am the way and the truth. And so we have one who's constantly going to lie to us. We have one who's constantly going to tell us the truth. Jesus constantly tells us how beautiful submissiveness is. Satan constantly tells us how bad it is. Now, I ask you this morning, who are you going to believe? You can't go to work and, and, and just out in the community and hang out with your friends and talk about submissiveness as if it is the devil itself and be honoring to God. We've got to stop it, brethren. Somebody has to stand up and honor God's plan. And God's plan is that submissiveness is beautiful. If you and I look back at some of the darkest times in U.S. history, what would we find? Do you remember things that were done in writing? You know, several of our kids recently have gone to the Civil Rights Museum. And that is a dark chapter in American history. There's a lot of shame to just walking through that place. There's a lot of thanksgiving for advancements that we've made. But you know, as I think about how we think submissiveness is bad, do you think that that fellow that placed 122 sticks of dynamite under the 16th Street Baptist Church porch in the 60s, And he killed four children. And he injured 23 others. Do you think he was being submissive to his government? Do you think he's being submissive to the laws of the land? We look at that and we want to shake a fist at it. And we want to say, do you realize how wrong you were? Why was he wrong, brethren? Someone says, preacher, you're being extreme. Is it extreme or not? Or is it just simply this fact? We speak out of both sides of our mouth. We say we hate submissiveness, but yet any time it goes out the window, all of a sudden we love it. How different would that community have been if everyone would have been submissive to whom they were supposed to be submissive? How many of you want to send your kids to a school where the kids are constantly rebelling against the teachers? Where there's gangs, there's riots that are taking control of the halls. Everybody here would say, I've got to get my kid out of that school tomorrow. They're not going to stay in there. Why? I thought you didn't like submissiveness. I thought you liked it when everybody got to rule their way and and just plow forward in life in selfish ambition. You don't want to live in a nation where people aren't submissive. 
You don't want your kids going to a school where people aren't submissive. Probably far too many of us at one time in our life have been in a congregation where people were not submissive and we know the pain that that creates when elders don't submit to God and when members don't submit to elders. We know the pain that creates. Friends, I beg you. You want to help your husband get to heaven? Submit to him. Not because he's worth more, has greater essence, because he's smarter, because because he's more talented. Why do you submit to him? Let's go back a slide there. And I'd like for you to look at Ephesians 5 and 22 and Colossians 3 and 18 just real quick here. Notice what it says. Wives, submit to your own husbands. Why? Because your husband is so much greater than you. No. It has nothing to do with who your husband is. That's why in 1 Peter 3 and 1, he tells wives to submit to husbands who aren't even Christians. It doesn't have anything to do with who your husband is. It's who your God is. Notice the last part. As to the Lord. Look at Colossians 3 and 18. Wives, submit to your own husbands. Notice it's your own husband. There's ownership here. Do we see the responsibility here? As is fitting to the Lord. We know, we know if something fits or not. If, if, you were, if you were putting up a piece of molding and you know that you have to, to go between two walls... You know when you make the cut whether or not it fits. Wives, will God look at your behavior last week? Will He look at your behavior this week as it relates to submissiveness? And will He say, that fits. That fits in my plan. I can bless that home. I can do great things in this home because you're going to see a lot of peace. You're going to see a lot of advancements. Why? A place where God fits is a place where a lot of growth takes place. Any of us that have been married a few years, if we're on track at all, we can look back and every one of us can say, we sure have grown a lot. We've grown spiritually. We've grown in how we work with each other. We've grown a whole lot. Now, what creates that environment where God can grow us? Listen, wives, what will not create that environment is nagging. The absence of nagging is a must. This isn't David Shannon speaking. This is the Word of God. It's our chaste conduct that does the speaking. It's not our nagging. Notice that. That they, talking about the husband, may be one, how? Without a word. Nagging will not work. Isn't it interesting that nagging is a problem that is pretty much agreed upon that women have more trouble than men with that? I don't know why. Men have a whole slew of problems. It's not piling on women. It's just a reality that that's kind of one of women's greatest challenges. And because of that, it's also interesting that most women don't like to be accused of nagging. It's kind of like, oh, don't, don't accuse me of that. But yet, also, a lot of women that nag don't even know they nag. So how do you know if you nag or not? You probably need a girlfriend that's honest enough with you that'll look you in the eyes and say, yeah, you do nag. And then you need to be honest enough with yourself and say, I'm really hurting my marriage. I'm hurting my husband's opportunity to grow because of that kind of behavior.
wives that boast of the fact, you know, they have two sons and they boast of the fact and say, yeah, I have three babies in my house. That's a good sign that she's a nagger, a real good sign, because that's what women that nag do. They treat their husband like a child. They turn around to their children like a good mother would do and they tell them what to do. And then they turn around to their husband like a bad wife would do and they tell them what to do. And then they wonder why their husband acts like a child. Now, is he responsible to act like a mature man? Yes. But is he given that environment? No, he's not given that environment. He would just have to overcome his environment to be able to do it. So the challenge... The challenge is for each of us to do what we can do. And what wives can do, according to God, is they can be chaste in their behavior. Their husband can know beyond any shadow of a doubt that she belongs to him, that she's committed to him. There's no reason to doubt her faithfulness. Number two, she will, because of that chaste behavior, be submissive because she loves God's plan and she's going to honor God. And number three, along with that submissiveness is the absence of nagging. It's impossible to be submissive and nagging at the same time. Where does this lead us? To heaven. That's the whole idea. Why would we do these things? We do it because we want to help our spouse and ourselves and the rest of our family get to heaven. When we have a strong family, we have one of the greatest gifts that God offers us. But please recognize this. Strong families are not received. Strong families are built day in and day out by husbands and wives sacrificing their will to God's will. And this morning... I hope that all of us are serious about building our life by sacrificing our will to God's will. No matter what our place is in this community, in this congregation, or in a family. And if we can help you move closer to God, we want to encourage you, we want to pray with you. If you're ready to be immersed into Christ, we'd love to assist you with that. If you're ready to come back to God and pray forgiveness, we'd love to pray with you. If there's any way that we can help you, come as we stand as we sing.